This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The final minor league baseball podcast of 2016. What the heck? How did this happen? The, the passage of time, yeah, I think. What? It, what? One week after another after another. That happened 52 times, and now what we're here. What's going on? I don't get it. I don't get how it works at all. Hey, hi, everybody. I'm Tyler Bond. Sam Dykstra's in New York City. Hi, Sam. Hi. Hi, Tyler. The, how was your... Uh, I would ask you how your holiday is, but we're recording this before the holidays. So we'll, uh, we'll pull back the curtain. We'll break the fourth wall, or however many walls there are on a podcast. But uh, last week... You got a chance to hear us talk about some of the best performers in minor league baseball and talk to some of the best performers in minor league baseball from the 2016 season. This week's show is being recorded literally like 90 seconds after the one you listened <laughs> to last week. So uh, now you know. Um, yeah, no, so we haven't we haven't celebrated anything. So still, happy holidays to all of you because we're yeah. still a few days away from it. Well, I, now we since you are listening to this in the future, uh, I hope your holiday was good. Yeah. Uh, you got everything you would want uh, from whatever you celebrate, and that you're uh, preparing for a you know a good New Year's and a prosperous 2017. Oh, can't be any worse than 2016, right? <laughs> I was gonna say prosperous and whatever that means to you. I feel like that's <laughs> whatever that means for anybody yeah. in 2017. Right. Uh, 2016 from a baseball sense, though, pretty solid. Like we had pretty- a good year on the podcast. Minor leagues, a good year year round again shattering attendance records, most affordable family-friendly environment, uh, and entertainment option as rated by Forbes and Sports Business Journal for the second, third straight year? Like the 50th straight year, basically? Some, something like that. that. Um, yeah. No, it was another good year in the minor leagues, and we had a ton of fun getting a chance to do the podcast, our second season of the Minor League Baseball podcast, the show before the show. And uh, this is episode number 90, which means we will crack the century mark like right at the middle of spring training this year. Yeah, so maybe our spring Holy training special cow. will be like a real big centennial special. Man, oh man. That is nuts. Yeah, that'll be that 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 work lines up pretty good. Pretty pretty, pretty pretty good. Again, pretty good. The passage of time yeah. continues unfettered. Uh so, like we said last week, Talk to some of the top talent in baseball. This week, we're going a different route. We're we're talking to some of the newsmakers around minor league baseball this year. And uh, if you missed last week's episode, by the way, you can find it at MILB.com slash podcast. Or you can head to iTunes. You can head to the Stitcher app. We've got links to those. We've got links to an RSS feed. All that stuff at MILB.com slash podcast. You can search for us as well on your mobile device with the minor league baseball podcast on all of your favorite podcasting apps. And last week... Talk to some of the guys who really blew things out on the field. This week, we're going to go away from the field a little bit, and we're going to start there in the Seattle Mariners organization with maybe my favorite interview from 2016. And I said that about last week's first guest also. That was Wilson Contreras of the Chicago Cubs. In an off-the-field context, Andy McKay of the Seattle Mariners 
fascinated me. And this one really just came in under the wire because we interviewed Andy McKay on January 15th, so almost a full year ago, but he, he makes it into the 2016 show and had just been hired on as the new director of player development for the Seattle Mariners. He was formerly a Colorado Rockies mental skills coach, and w- there was a lot written about, oh, he's a sports psychologist, sports psychologist. He actually clarified with us he's not a sports psychologist. He's worked on the mental side of the game for a while, but he's not a doctor. Uh, he's not medically licensed. He's just been in that field for quite some time. But in addition to that, he's coached at the youth levels. He's coached at the collegiate levels uh, with collegiate summer leagues, woodbat leagues, that kind of stuff, and then got into kind of the player development side. And when that hire was made, a lot of people looked at it as like, where are the Mariners going with this? And Andy McKay came on the podcast, was very, very outgoing, very forthright with his expectations for the system. And no interview do I feel like had a better callback in 2016 than Andy McKay because we spent a lot of time talking about how important winning was in player development. And the callback at the end of the year was the fact that the Seattle Mariners finished the 2016 season with the best overall winning percentage of any minor league system in baseball. And that was after being sixth worst in 2015. That still, to me, the fact that we talked about it so much with Andy back in January and then it came through the way it did, it would have been one thing to have improved to be an upper third minor league system in terms of winning percentage. But that turnaround was incredible. Yeah, yeah, they're 590 collective winning percentage uh, you know as an organization is just kind of astonishing the Phillies were second at 581 so it wasn't exactly a close race uh, third was the Red Sox at 556 um so the the fact that you know he laid out it's it's easy to say like listen we're just going to start winning that's what we're going to do we're going to win so much our teams are going to get sick of winning uh yes that's a reference <laughs> i did not pull that out of my back pocket um but you know, it's one thing to just say that that needs to happen, and it's another thing to make it happen so quickly. Uh, you know, a part of that is Jerry Depoto did a lot of trades last offseason. Um, I don't think that was to make winning ball clubs in the Myers, but, um, you know, you when you have guys at the top buying in and you have, you know, new voices coming in, uh, it's it's a little easier to make change, and the Mariners did that extremely well this year. Uh, and, you know, and then they add first-round talent like Kyle Lewis, uh, unfortunately goes through a pretty serious knee injury. We'll see how he's going to be for 2017. But, you know, Edwin Diaz turns into an elite reliever. Uh, Tyler O'Neill turns into one of the you know most impressive sluggers in all of the minors. Uh, Luis Gohara looks like he's kind of ironed things out uh, as a lefty on the mound. So a lot to like in this Mariner system. Uh, and it's fun to have, you know, somebody talk about their process at the very beginning and to see it play out in front of our eyes. So uh, that's why we reference this McKay interview a lot during the year. And since it happened almost a year ago now, we're, we'll go back to it and have you guys listen to it now. One of the more interesting hires of the offseason was uh, in the Seattle Mariners front office. Kind of a house cleaning there from the 2015 season on to 2016. And the Mariners going in a different direction with the farm system for 2016. And the man who is in charge of that project is the new director of player development for the Seattle Mariners, Andy McKay, who joins us on the show. Andy, welcome. How are you? 
I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, guys. Absolutely. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming on with us. So let's let's jump into this topic. Uh, you inherit a system that has a lot of really exciting pieces, has some work to do, obviously, to build itself back up to where the system has been in the past. But the thing that I think fascinates most people about the hire of you to head this project for the Mariners is your background. Um, we hear so often about whether it's the analytics guys or the guys who've been in player development for a long time. You come from the mental side of the game, formerly the peak performance coordinator in the Colorado Rocky system, a sports psychologist. You're very in tune with that, what it means for athletes uh, growing, getting to the big leagues and beyond. Um, how did this whole process come about? I mean, obviously you've had uh, a long-standing relationship. Jerry DePoto is a guy who's been around this game for a long time. He has some ties with the Rockies organization. Tell us how this came about um, being, you know, not necessarily the most traditional hire uh, to come on as a, a player development director. Okay, well, uh, you know, real quick, and I, I always have to start this with kind of the uh, – I guess an awkward moment where uh, I'm not a sports psychologist. Okay. And and the reason I say that is because I I don't want anybody thinking that I'm portraying myself as one. Um, and that was something that the media picked up on very quickly because of my title as mental skills coach. Um, so I'm not a licensed psychologist. Um, but I did teach a sports psychology uh, class at Sacramento City College for about 15 years. And, uh, and I made, uh, kind of a name for myself in the industry as a mental skills coach. So, um, you know, it's a big part of what I do. Uh, I believe in it wholeheartedly, but, um, I certainly do not want to be perpetuating the, the myth that I'm a, a licensed psychologist. So, um, when I got, uh, hired, uh, with the Rockies, it was kind of a, um, interesting story. I was coaching in the Northwoods league. Uh, summer baseball, and I was coaching uh, Dan O'Dowd's son, uh, Chris, at the time. So that's how I initially uh, got involved in professional baseball was through Dan. Um, but I was also coaching uh, Tyler Service, Scott Service's son, uh, was part of that program as well. So I'd kind of gotten to know Scott as well during that time. So as I was working for the uh, Rockies, um, you know, I think that there was probably, um, you know, some mutual friends of, of Jerry and Scott, people they'd work with in Colorado. Uh, I had never met Jerry DePoto. I'd never spoken to Jerry DePoto uh, until I interviewed with him. Uh, but there were the connections of the Rockies. You know, both Scott and Jerry had spent time there. And, uh, you know, so when this came up and, um, you know, Jerry asked me to interview with him, um, you know, I think part of it was the, uh, the mental skills background, but you know, I've also coached uh, baseball for you know 20 years. I've I've managed teams. I've been a pitching coach. I've been a hitting coach. Um, I have an MBA, uh, so I do have a background in business and uh, organization, uh, organizational skills and whatnot. So um, kind of a, a diverse background that I think probably at the end uh, attracted Jerry. Yeah, and and part of that, you know, you mentioned you know, not necessarily being a psychologist, but at least mental skills. How much in player development do you think that that part of the game is kind of overlooked, you know, generally by the baseball community, or is it overlooked? Is it just something fans don't necessarily hear a part of? Um, I do think it's overlooked. Um, and I think that there's a lot of, uh, um, uh, it's a difficult area to teach. It's a difficult area to quantify. Um, and so people can be resistant to it. There's a, there's a lot of people working at it in the industry. Um, 
in, in very different degrees and levels. And I think that what I've been able to do, um, maybe that separates a little bit is, um, you know, I've been able to connect with the players, uh, very well because of my baseball background. Um, you know, but it is, it's not, uh, you know, it's not 10% or not 20%. Uh, baseball is 100% mental. And, uh, and I think most baseball people would agree with that. And, uh, you know, the, the body follows the mind and the body does what the mind tells it to do. So your physical breakdowns are always preceded by mental breakdowns. Um, so I think probably most teams are employing somebody and I think they're having, you know, different levels of success. Um, probably in some scenarios where it's really good work in other areas where it's maybe just okay. Yeah. Now let's kind of pivot to the organization you're working in now with the Mariners. Um, you know, Tyler alluded to it um, at the the open there, just how much, you know, this team is kind of in flux right now. There's been a lot of trades this off season, mostly at the major league level, but you guys bring in a guy like Boog Powell to the farm system. Um, what, what, how do you kind of evaluate the system as it stands right now? Um, you know, going into your first season in this new role? Well, I think one of the, you know, the benefits of coming into a new organization is that, you know, you don't have the emotional tie to it. Um, you know, you haven't drafted these players. You haven't um, spent quality time with these players so that you've become attached to them, uh, that you're able to really look at it objectively. And, uh, you know, right now the system is, uh, we, we have our challenges and uh, we have some real challenges in front of us. Um, but I think most, the most important thing is that we've accurately assessed where those, uh, challenges lie. And we have an organizational plan from the major leagues down to the Dominican Republic to address them. Um, I believe in the players that we have. Um, and I believe that the players we have will, um, you know, that they will make strides, but, um, you know, I, I like to consider myself a realist. Um, we have real challenges in front of us. Um, this is not a, uh, a system that is um, thriving right now. Um, you know, the deficiencies are um, easy to identify. And, uh, you know, we've identified them and we're, we're willing to get to work on them. Andy, I want to ask you about uh, a really cool quote you gave to the Lacrosse Tribune in a story back when you were in the Northwest League in 2008, uh, the Northwoods League in 2008, in which you said, uh, quote, that balance between player development and winning, those aren't conflicting ideas. It's the same thing. If the kids play well, they're going to win. Um, in the minor leagues, so many different organizations talk about how it is about player development. It's not necessarily about the results and wins and losses and whatever, but it does, I think, uh, I mean, as you said, that plays in a lot with how confident guys are how confident teams are and to build that culture where guys feel like they're going to go out and win and feel like they have the ability to be impact players day to day or an impact team day to day how important is that to create that culture and for you being somebody who is so hands-on getting to know what guys are thinking how they're feeling what their goals are personally all of that how important is that for you to make sure that you have sort of a personal relationship with these guys you kind of get to know them uh, maybe be a little bit more hands-on than what your position is in certain organizations more than others um, how much does that factor into it for you going into this year as your first season quite a bit um you know it's an interesting quote i uh, i certainly don't remember saying it but i i know that i did because that's what i believe <laughs> and uh you know I, I i know i have no idea how other clubs look at it um i'm sure there's very very intelligent baseball people that would would dispute this with me um 
you know, and like you said, I'll, I'll be in uniform. Uh, I'll be in the dugout, uh, in my travels. Um, you know, but if you look at where I've, where I've coached, I spent most of my career at a community college where the job really was twofold. You were trying to win baseball games, but you were also trying to get players to division one baseball. Um, and you were trying to get them signed. And then I was, you know, in summer baseball, whether I was in the Cape Cod League or in Alaska or in the Northwoods League, where it was the same thing. I had these kids for a summer, and I needed to win, and I wanted to win. But I also needed those kids to go back to their school a better player. And they all came in with specific things that they were working on. And so my whole life has been spent developing and winning. And uh, I just I, I think it's a, it's a myth. It's just a talking point of – you know, you can only do one. And I've never understood that. Um, and I know that you can do both because I've, I've done both and I've seen plenty of other people do both, but it comes down to this. And this is something I believe, um, with every, with every cell in my body, you have to teach people to win baseball games and you're trying to win in the major leagues. And so to let them go through a three or four or five year minor league career, where it's just about them and developing their own skills. Um, I think you're, you're working against yourself uh, to think that that player is automatically going to flip a switch and become team oriented and to care about his team and to actually know how to do the things you need to do to win baseball games. Uh, that does not make sense. So, you know, I look at winning as, as another piece of development where you're teaching people, you're teaching players what it takes to win the baseball game. Um, and that does not take away at all from any of the individual development, but individual development without the ability to, to help the team win is of no value. And so, you know, you have to, um, to me, you have to look at it like that. The, the two, the development and winning do not uh, combat each other at all. They support each other. And the more you develop, the more you're going to win, but the more you win, uh, the more you actually develop and, the whole point is to win games at the major league level. And so um, I do not view minor league games as practice games. Um, I view them as, and I've always looked at, you know, organizations through periods of time, you know, when, when the twins were kind of the, the class of, of minor league baseball, um, you know, when you had guys like Kadire and Morneau and Latroy Hawkins, those guys were winning minor league championships and they were playing in minor league postseasons. Um, and that's what I'm, that's what we're going to try to do in Seattle. I, I think it's important that players win and that there's an expectation of winning and that winning feels really good and that losing hurts um, just like it does at the major league level. Sticking in the American League West, this is one of our most unique interviews of the 2016 season. The Houston Astros organization and Rachel Balkovec, who is the Latin America strength and conditioning coach in the Astros organization, came on the show for episode number 51, and that was back uh, at the very early stages of the minor league season in terms of rosters being put together and things getting set for 2016. It was toward the tail end of spring training back on March 24th, um, and it was really neat for us to get a chance to talk to Rachel. We've had a, a few guests on the podcast. Um, you know, we a few years ago got a chance to talk with Justine Siegel uh, two seasons ago, who is 
one of the real pioneers in women's baseball and its relationship to the men's game, to the professional game at the minor league level, the major league level. Um, and for Rachel Balkovec, working in a system is such a different context from somebody who works, you know, with youth teams, with trying to promote pathways into baseball, uh, somebody like Justine Siegel, Rachel's on the inside of it in the Astros organization and talked to us from spring training. And that was really neat because not only did we get a chance to kind of hear about what it was like for her breaking into this business and a very unique road for her, but what her position entails, because not only is the, the strength and conditioning work really unique and, and really difficult, but also the fact that she's doing it with the Latin American prospects, she's worked a lot. Uh, at the the Dominican facility and that type of stuff that's so so much different from just being somebody who's stationed you know with the Greenville Astros or with uh, Lancaster or with whoever it is Um, a really really interesting perspective from Rachel yeah definitely and the the cool thing about it was you know hearing her talk about uh, you know kind of crossing that language barrier um, what it's like to work with guys when you're not necessarily a native Spanish speaker she's obviously can speak Spanish and she can hold that down. And I think she talks about how, you know, watching those guys gain their English skills as well. Um, but, you know, we, we try to make this a diverse podcast as much as we can. Um, so we try to bring in those outside voices. Rachel was one of them uh, when she was hired. You know, we, I wanted to bring her on just to get her perspective, not only as, you know, as a woman in baseball, but as a strength and conditioning coach, because how often do I think people get to hear that side of the game? Uh, what happens outside, you know, the the white chalk lines. Um, so, you know, you get to hear all of that from her here. Um, and also, I think we did the interview as she was walking back from the field in spring training. So uh, it's, again, just heart, harps back to what it's like to hear somebody at the beginning of their work, you know, laying out what it's going to be like for them and, uh, you know, what they had to do to get there in the first place. From episode number 51, the first female strength and conditioning coach in baseball, Rachel Balkovic joined the show. Show before the show podcast continues along from MILB.com. We are headed to the Grapefruit League in the Houston Astros spring training facility, which is a place where we uh, actually have not gotten to go a whole lot so far this spring. But Rachel Balkovic joins us from uh, Kissimmee, Florida, correct? That is correct. Much I'm better weather uh, down there than on... a whole lot of places. <laughs> yep, I'm standing on field one at the complex. Outside, so if it's a little windy, then I apologize, but I'm working the game tonight, so outside. Well, tell us how it's been going so far. Uh, let's give people some background. You are uh, right now overseeing the Latin American conditioning program in the Astros organization, um, one of, if not the premier system in all minor league baseball, not just from talent, but really from the way this organization has blazed a lot of trails over the last few seasons. Um, what has this spring been like Absolutely. for you? Just kind of tell us about how you got into the Astros system. Um. It's been phenomenal. This is just really uh, a class organization. I'm I'm proud. I'm definitely proud to be a part of this organization. Um, like you said, obviously they're blazing a trail in a lot of different ways, and they they're doing things a little different here. So it's it's fun, it's fast paced, it's challenging, um, which are all things that I really like. And so I think that it's been uh, so far it's just been a lot of fun is, is the best way to describe it. Um, how did I get linked up with the Astros? I actually, um, I applied for this job. So my title is the Latin American Strength Conditioning Coordinator. And I applied for this exact same job two seasons ago, and I didn't get it. So, which is a great story that I probably don't have time to tell, but I didn't get the job. I wasn't fluent enough at the time. I didn't have enough Spanish um, under my belt. And so uh, at the time I did not get the job. And so this is kind of like two years in the making for me to come 
back and have an opportunity to be able to do this after spending two years with the, the Cardinals as the coordinator and getting a little more fluent with my Spanish, a little bit more polished in that area. So that's kind of how that came about. Long story short. Yeah. Well, yeah, kind of take us through that story a little bit then. How did you kind of learn Spanish? How did you kind of get into it? And how have the players kind of taken to you so far, you know, being a new person around camp, um, being a non-native speaker? What What is that like? I think it's probably like um, if an elephant were to open its mouth and quack like a duck. <laughs> so people... <laughs> People see this white girl, you know, from, I'm from Nebraska, from Omaha, and, you know, I had the normal, like, high school Spanish, and by the time I entered baseball in 2012, I'd completely forgotten all of it. Um, so it's been, a, it's been a learning process, but I just, I knew right off the bat that that was going to be something I was going to do, because for me, I, I knew I wanted to be in professional baseball, and I also knew that, that 40, 40 to 50% of professional baseball is Latin American players. And so for me, it was a no-brainer. It wasn't an option. I, I had to learn it. It was something that, just like anything else, like I had to learn strength and conditioning. That was something that was going to make me better at my job and, and allow me to better relate to the players and have them buy in more. And so I think, you know, they, it's kind of funny, like, again, being in a new organization for the first time after three seasons with the Cardinals, that I'm this white chick. And then all of a sudden, I open my mouth and start speaking Spanish. And people are like, what? They kind of, you know, so they're turning their heads like, wait, what? Is she saying it? She's speaking Spanish? Shoot. Now I'm going to have to listen to her. <laughs> so, but, but then right after that, it's also a conversa- conversation piece. And I'm going through the same struggle that the players go through learning English. So as much as you wouldn't think that, a, again, a, a, a woman like me from Nebraska has anything in common with a Latin American baseball player, we really do. So I'm teaching them Spanish, and they're teaching me – I'm teaching them English, they're teaching me Spanish, and it's kind of developed – it's a way to further develop the relationship and they're taking, I feel like the Latin players are taking to me really well. Um, and I feel like that's, you know, those are my favorite players to work with. And I feel like they can, they know that, you know, as long as you care about them and that you're invested in their career, they're going to, they're going to eat out of your hand no matter what. So it's going well. Yeah. And once you get over that language barrier and you guys are obviously established those relationships, what is it like being a strength and conditioning coach, you know, especially at the minor league level, a lot of these younger guys coming up, a lot of people kind of look, don't really know what goes on in those backfields and those, you know, in those uh, oh, workout gosh. rooms. Nobody knows. Yeah. Kind of take us through <laughs> it. Uh, yeah. It's just so funny. Like the major league team is the tip of the iceberg and you could, I, my favorite, I wanted this job. You know, a lot of people say they want to be in the big leagues. They want to work in the big leagues. They want to coach there. But for me, I wanted this job. This is this is a dream come true for me, and I love working with the younger players because you really get a chance to not only affect them physically as a baseball player, but you know, as a as a young man, you know, you get to shape them with discipline, with education, with creating creating good habits for them physically and mentally. You know, working through. I, we find kids when they're 16 years old. So when you see the end pro, end product of your you know your Altuve's in in the big leagues. That started when he was 16 with us. And so it's like you're taking this, this child almost. You kind of take on like a mentoring, a parenting uh, role. And I'm, I don't feel like I, – I, I often say if you told me today that the only thing that I do for the players is get them strong and get them in good condition, I would quit. You know, like that's not, that's not even close to what we do as strength and conditioning coaches. We are definitely – especially at the younger levels, we're definitely serving as – mentors, you know, and, and parent, mother figures, father figures, 
brother and sister figures. Those, that's the thing that I really revel in and really enjoy. And, you know, for example, today we just had a ceremony for some of our kids that quote unquote graduated from the English program here. And for me, that is even, that's way more exciting than seeing someone even get to the big leagues because it's not like you're changing them physically or helping them get better skills. You're changing their life. You know, you're literally changing the course of their life if you can mentor them in that way. And so that's why I really love being a strength and conditioning coach at this, you know, young level, especially with the Latin players. Rachel, you got your start uh, with the Cardinals as an intern a few seasons ago, and I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about how much uh, I would imagine, you know, once you start applying for jobs after that first internship in any career field, it's always easier because at least you have that experience. You can say, you know, I've done this at this level. But for you to break in at that level, has got to be a lot harder than the average road for somebody. And you've talked about that with MLB.com. Brian McTaggart had a story on you last month. I know Lindsey Baird mm-hmm. did a story uh, a couple of years ago. How difficult was it to get your, your foot in the door for the very first time? You know, what's funny is like the first time around, it, it seems a lot easier than the second time. But um, the first time with the Cardinals, it was like almost a simple process where the Cardinals had called LSU where I was doing my graduate assistantship and LSU recommended me and they just kind of, they just, they said, they took the lead, you know, they just did it. And so they hired me as an intern and it was a very short you know, stint. It was like five-ish months. I didn't even go to spring training. It was an internship for sure, you know, part-time basis. At the end of the season, my contract was up and it was over. So then I left baseball for a year. Well, I didn't leave baseball. I, I often say I didn't leave baseball. Baseball left me. So I left the Cardinals, rather, and I moved to Phoenix to start uh, curriculum for a PhD. And I thought, hey, I've got this great resume. I've got the Cardinals. I've got LSU. I've got, I had moved to the Dominican Republic. I got LSU, as they would say. I was pretty good at Spanish. And I had a nice little base. I was like, this would be a piece of cake. You know, I'll just apply, apply for all the Phoenix AZL jobs out there. And that was not the case. And then I kind of got a dose of reality uh, going to apply for jobs in that case where I applied, for, I applied for eight jobs and basically only heard back from one that then later told me, you know, it's not going to work out because you're a girl. So I I then heard through the grapevine a bunch, hey, my boss got your resume, it's not going to work, though, and all of these things about just hearing through the grapevine of like, oh, yeah, sorry, I got your resume, it's great, but, you know, the front office doesn't want to hire you. So, so things like that, which were extremely, I don't want to say they were discouraging, they were disappointing, you know, because I was, I don't, I don't really think I was ever discouraged, like, call it dumb or call it optimistic or whatever you want to call it, but even though I was hearing those things and I knew that it was going on, I was just like, all right, whatever. Like someone's going to accept me at some point. Someone's going to give me a good opportunity at some point. I was never discouraged. I was just always disappointed that that was the case. So yeah, it was, uh, that was a rough year. 2013 was a definitely rough year personally in a lot of ways, but um, didn't deter me necessarily from, from going after the goal. Yeah, and one thing we read in some of the stories um, about you is that you put your name differently on the resume, just put Ray yeah. instead of Rachel, just to <laughs> kind of give it, you know, a, a dual meaning to, to try to get across as a not not somebody else, but just a different name that would come across. Um, but what else did you have yeah. to kind of get do to get over that hump, you know, to get people on people's desks, get your foot? In- you know what is? I always say like, do the for me. Obviously, I had to do a couple of things like that. I didn't have to do that, but, and I also felt bad right after I did it, but I was, to be honest with you, a little desperate probably, but, um, you know, all I always probably. say like, 
I had to be, I knew as a woman, I had to be undeniable. Like I wanted them to look at my resume and, and say, not to say, well, yeah, she has a good resume, but say, we can't literally cannot go without hiring that woman. Like we need her. And so what I did was like, like I interned at Arizona state two separate times for free. I was a graduate assistant at LSU for a thousand bucks a month. I worked at athletes for, for, for performance for free. I uh, did an internship with the fall league. I was making $30 a day. I, you know, I worked in the Dominican Republic for like $50 a day. So I did the things that other people weren't willing to do. And for me, that was a huge part of like, if you're going to break a barrier, you're going to, or if you're going to expect someone to, you know, be a pioneer for you and give you an opportunity when other people won't, then you do have you, in, in my mind, you have to beat out the other competition by and far, you have to be head and shoulders above everybody else. And so what did I do to, you know, be given the opportunity? I, I wanted to be the best. You know, I'm always going to do that. I'm, I'm never going to leave it to chance that somebody could say, well, you know, it's oh, she, her resume is okay. No, like my resume is going to be the best resume. I didn't learn Spanish for fun. I learned Spanish to get better at my job. You know, so I think that's like something that can't be underestimated is, you know, yes, I did things like, okay, I changed my name, but that didn't really get me in the door. In fact, it didn't even work that well. So right. kind of backfired a little bit. Um, so the thing that got me in the door, I think, is just, me being good at what I do and, and also being better at others than, you know, at at what we do. And the way to do that was I was going to take the jobs that nobody else wanted to take. I was going to work for free as long as it took. And that's what I did. Well, last week we got a chance to talk to a bunch of prospects who made their major league debuts and broke through as highly touted guys, young players in the system, really very anticipated debuts, all that kind of stuff. And for episode number 56, we talked to one of those guys in Albert Almora. That was in late April. He made his major league debut in early June. The week before that, we talked to Matt Bushman of the Arizona Diamondbacks organization. And Matt Bushman is about as far from that road as one could imagine a 15th round draft selection out of Vanderbilt back in 2006 Matt Bushman did not make his major league debut until April 10th 2016 and 11 days after that we got a chance to talk game and this is really the antithesis of that top prospect interview but this stands out to both of us is not just one of our favorite podcast interviews this is one of our favorite conversations that we've had I think in our careers with MILB yeah, definitely. Um, just because he talks about so many things that I don't think, you know, A, we get to cover that much or people get to hear about. Uh, you you hear the name Quad A thrown or the you know moniker Quad A thrown out a lot uh, just as guys who might be a little too good for AAA but never really stick in the majors. And Bushman never really even got to that level. You know, as of right now, uh, he's got 307 games in the minors. That's 1,468 and two-thirds innings pitched in the minor leagues. Uh, you know, Typically, guys have careers like that in the majors, and you think that's a pretty full career. He's had that only in the minors. Uh, he, he got three appearances this year in the majors, four and a third in, innings. So he, he finally got his feet wet. Uh, we got to talk to him right after he made his major league debut. He had been set back down to AAA Reno. Uh, but the thing I... Th- think that really stuck out the most to me is that you know we talk we because we're so focused on prospects we talk a lot about the draft or you know prospect trades or something like that Bushman is a guy who has gone through the minor league free agency business a lot Um, and to hear him talk about what that's like you know not being a guy 
like, you know, Edwin Encarnacion or Jose Batista or anybody who's on the market, um, you know, being chased, getting these multi-year offers. So what does it mean to be a minor league free agent? You'll hear Bushman talk about that. And he's actually, I think, still a minor league free agent. He elected free agency uh, from the D-backs on November 7th. Uh, don't believe he's signed anywhere as of this taping. Maybe that'll change in between now and when you guys hear this. But uh, just know that he is going through that process again now. There are some minor league stories that are kind of the cool, interesting ones, and there are some that transcend to an entirely different plane. And our guest on this week's edition of the show before the show podcast is right-handed pitcher Matt Bushman of the Arizona Diamondbacks organization who has had, uh, let's put it this way, a lengthy road to get to the big leagues and a pretty amazing story. And uh, Matt, welcome into the show, man. How are you? Uh, great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming on with us. Um, let's give people kind of the the basics on your story. Drafted out of Vanderbilt in 2006, you were a collegiate roommate of David Price. Uh, according to a Grantland story that I read from last year, you won more games than David Price in college, which is, you know, something to put on a resume. It's always nice. Um, but making it into the Padres organization, 15th round in 06, and then you're in the minor leagues kind of wandering in the desert that is the minors for 10 seasons. And this year, you made your big league debut at third. Um, what has the last couple of weeks been like for you? I mean, three appearances so far, four and a third. Option back down seems like kind of a numbers game with the Diamondbacks after playing some long games the last few days, really. Uh, but, you know, good numbers at the major league level, a 2.08 ERA in your first four and a third at the, at the major league level. And to do it at 32, to do it after everything you've been through, what has this experience been like the last couple of weeks? Uh, it's been awesome. I mean, you know, I guess I, I guess I could say I was really, really prepared uh, for that call up. Um, <laughs> You know, at at the end of the day, it's just it's it's obviously like you know it, it kind of makes that long road all worth it, um, and just kind of like um, you know it just gives you the the feeling that like yeah like all that work was uh, for something and and you know I wasn't wrong in believing that I, I felt like I could compete at that level, and um, you know and it's just been an, an awesome experience to be able to accomplish that and then you know, and then to get there and pitch and, and pitch, um, you know, I felt like I pitched well and, uh, you know, at least take advantage of an opportunity that was given to me. And uh, I feel good about that. Throughout Matt's career, he's been with the Padres, the Rays, the A's, back with the Rays, with the Reds, with the Orioles, and now with the Diamondbacks. And I know at a lot of those stages, Matt, especially reading that story from last summer, I know there were a bunch of different situations where you would think objectively, all right, this guy's finally going to get the call. And sometimes it just doesn't go that way. Major League organizations have reasons for making certain decisions. Sometimes they are borne out to be very bad reasons for making certain decisions. Uh, and instead of you getting the call and proving that you could do it at the major league level you were kind of left a lot of times wondering what it was going to take to get there and I mean this is what's so amazing about this story is it's almost more difficult to do what you have done and continue to be an effective minor league guy without getting that call than it is to go up to the big leagues and really struggle and and be sent back down and do that continual bouncing along I mean you've walked a tightrope in the minors that's virtually impossible to do do you have kind of an appreciation for the longevity of being able to stay in this without getting that first call and then of course the validation of knowing you went up there and you proved yourself for the first time yeah, I mean, it. you know, I, I think over the last couple of years, I would just, you know, there'd be random times where I'd look back and just be like, you know what? I mean, it's, it's, it's the very least, it's, it's crazy to me that I've played this long with, you know, without really ever getting, you know, quote unquote released or, you know, playing well enough that teams are still interested in me every off season, uh, despite my age. And, um, you know, and that was, an, that was kind of another thing for me that just said, yeah, like at some point I, I still feel like I can pitch at the big league level and, 
if teams are still interested and I can still, you know, put up good numbers every year and um, at the very least for teams be a good option um, at AAA that's going to be consistent. And, you know, for me, it was just stay healthy and be consistent and, you know, hopefully an opportunity arises. And uh, kind of going to this offseason, you know, you, you do sign with the D-backs you, or you come into camp with them. Um, Why did you why'd you pick them? Why did they pick you? What, what was that conversation like this offseason that obviously led to, to your first big league chance? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, after after the year before, I think I was I was pretty frustrated with the year before. I mean, I thought I started off well with the Rays and, and took my out and thought I had an opportunity. It didn't happen. And, you know, and then I, I, you know, chose the Reds and I thought I went there and pitched well. And, you know, they just I, I think they were in a, a spot where they, you know, their season uh, wasn't going as, as planned. And so they were going to give a lot of their young guys some opportunities. And I can understand that. And, you know, at the end of the season, it's just it was frustrating. But um the Diamondbacks had been interested in me um, last year and I talked to Mike Bell and I thought the conversations I had with Mike Bell were really good. And I just, he seemed very honest. And, you know, as, as someone like me, that's been playing for so long, all you can ask for is honesty in this game at, at that point. It's just, you know, let me know that I'm not playing for nothing, that I'm playing for an opportunity uh, if I do perform. And I felt uh, that, you know, what he said uh, kind of rang true and uh, they backed it up. You know, I came in and I, I loved, coming into their camp um, in spring training. I thought they did everything great. And, um, you know, I was just really happy to be there, and it just felt like a different place, and it ended up being a different place. And when you talk about that honesty, I mean, you touched on a little bit there, but, um, you know, what exactly was Mike Bell telling you? Was he saying if X domino falls, we're looking at a spot for you? Or what really stood out about what he had said as opposed to other general managers who I'm sure are telling you, you know, left and right. Oh, we, you might get a shot here. Um, what, what kind of rang true about what he was saying? Well, they had, they'd proven it, um, in years past, you know, they had called up six year free agents like myself and, and had called up guys that had gone to Reno and pitched well, I believe they had Chassin last year and he, he came to them and pitched well and he got uh, a call up. And so, you know, you're just looking for that team that, you know, I understand that there's, there's certain teams that, you know, they value things differently and, you know, sometimes they're very, very reluctant to give up a 40-man spot, um, you know, but it seemed like with the, historically with what they've done, they've made moves based on, um, you know, production. And since they've done it in the past, I just felt like, all right, well, you know, I feel like I've been in a couple places the years past where it wasn't, you know, production wasn't necessarily a number one value. And, um, and But I understand that too. And, you know, the, the Diamondbacks want to win. They want to win now, which is great. And, you know, I, I feel like they're they're – willing and able to take the best pitcher possible. And um, kind of talked about it a little bit here, but kind of take us through just that process, what it's like to go through minor league free agency. I mean, so much of what people focus on in the minors is prospects who are just guys signed, drafted, your national free agents, that kind of thing, and they're in one team. Um, what is it like when you're, when you are a six-year free agent, when you're dealing with these June 15, you know, out clauses, as you kind of mentioned before? Um, what is that whole process like as compared to, you know, a young guy? going through a system um you know i think it, it's for the first time in your career if you haven't had a chance to be on the 40 man when you become a minor league free agent you, you have a chance to have a little bit of leverage it's you know like for for six years in the minor leagues you really have none um you can't control what you make you can't control like you can't put pressure on the team to make a decision about you i mean with the rule of five draft a little bit but that's still pretty tough to to get through uh, or to get um drafted in the rule of five draft but it's the first time you have a little bit of leverage. You have teams competing for you. And so, you know, anytime you can, you try to get some kind of out clause that says, look, if I'm pitching well, 
I don't want to, you know, stay in a situation where it's just not, you know, I'm going to pitch well all year and nothing's going to happen for it. So I think that's what you look for and you can start making a little bit more money. So it's not as uh, tough to swallow every year um, playing uh, for very little money. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you're just trying to find the best situation and you, you really are just trying to talk to front offices and say, Hey, like, you know, is this a really good opportunity for someone like me that has no big league time, you know, and are you guys going to go with all your young guys or are you looking for the best pitcher possible? And it's just, it's trying to kind of set that out and see which one's the best. Talking with Matt Bushman of the Arizona Diamondbacks organization, who was optioned back to AAA Reno this week, but uh, it's because the D-backs have been playing a whole host of lengthy games as of late and uh, needed some fresh arms up at the major league level. And Matt, um, being an Arizona system for the first time, you are so well-traveled, uh, not just in your minor league career, but uh, even internationally. I mean, you played in Mexico for parts of uh, three or four winners uh, with Culiacan and with Mazatlan, and I know that is such an avenue for guys to kind of get an extra look, where maybe somebody's going to see you down there who wouldn't see you in, in your minor league career or who maybe just might not take as much notice of like, man, this, this guy is really good. Uh, what, what does that avenue provide for guys like you who are sort of looking for maybe those extra innings or extra exposure uh, who didn't necessarily, you know, maybe jump off the page of scouts during the season? What were those campaigns like for you? Because I know, you know, at the end of a long minor league season, for some guys, it's the last thing you want to do is go down and throw, you know, 80, 90 more innings in some cases. But what was that experience like for you going to Mexico for some winners? Um, I loved it. I loved it. I mean, and, and, and honestly, it was kind of the reason that it kind of got me back, um, maybe back to pitching, um, at a level that I, you know, felt like you could maybe finally get to the big leagues, but you know, I had a rough season, my first year in AAA in the PCL, like I think a lot of people do, but, um, it was after that season that I kind of fell off and, you know, kind of started to become like a hidden minor leaguer. And I had to find a way to, you know, reassert myself as someone that was uh, good and could pitch at a high level. And so, you know, after 2010, um, I went down to Mexico and, you know, I loved it. It's, it's different baseball and minor leagues is very much about development and, and winter ball is about winning and you get back to just competing and you kind of become your own coach because you're down there. And it's like the likelihood of your coach, uh, pitching coach speaking English is, uh, you know, 50, 50. So you just, you kind of go within yourself, you figure out, uh, all right, you know, this is on me. I'm going to make the changes I need to make. And you just get back to competing instead of worrying about, you know, was, was I throwing hard enough today? Did the scouts like it? It's just like, I'm going to go win a ball game. And, you know, I think I, I like I said, I just really enjoyed my time in Mexico because it got back to just baseball being fun. And, you know, I think those extra innings helped me make some mechanical adjustments that I need to make, help me add a third pitch. And, you know, from there, I feel like is when, you know, about 2013 is when I feel like I added a third pitch and, and really was able to take the next step. All right, Matt, there's two more I just kind of want to get to with you quick. I don't think we've quite asked mm -hmm. you what the individual moment was like when you got called up. Um, you know, we, I think you're the first guest we've had on the show who has got that call to the major. So specifically for you, what was that moment like? And what is it like now being back in Reno, having gotten that taste? Um, you know, how, how, what's it going to be like kind of going forward for you? Um, well, it was, it was awesome getting the call. Um, uh, Phil Nevin's the manager in Reno. And he actually, I was in my apartment. Uh, we had just played uh, our first game. And he asked me where I was. And he said, oh, we need to talk. And we just... He's like, well, let's meet at this bar. And okay. And I didn't know what it was, but you have a feeling, but after 10 years, you don't really trust your, your assumptions. You know, you just kind of go, well, I don't know. It could be bad or good. <laughs> you know, he, he showed up and 
you know, I had a water and he's like, get a water. What are you doing? What are you drinking a water? I'm like, well, I don't, I don't know what kind of drink to get if it's a good drink or a bad drink. <laughs> um, and so then he sat down and he's like, you know, it's nothing bad, but we're just waiting for one more person. And, and Mike Bell, um, uh, director of uh, minor league coordinator. And he came and he's like, we're waiting for him. And he sat down and it was like this 10 minute process. And I'm like, just tell me, just tell me what you need to tell me. And so, uh, so finally he's like, look, I, I can't, tell a guy who's going to the big leagues for the first time over the phone. I wanted to tell him in person, and, you know, I just like, I just kind of went numb and I got, you know, I, it was very emotional and I just had this big smile on my face and, you know, it just went through my head, all the people that had really just that helped me throughout the years. And it just, it was, it was really emotional in a good way. And I got a chance to call my wife and wake them, uh, wake her up and wake my parents up. And it was a really cool phone call to make. As far as being back yeah. in Reno, you know, it's, I understand the part of it. I just, you know, my whole thing for 10 years has been give me an opportunity and, and they gave me one. And I, you know, I did as, as good as I possibly could with that opportunity. And, you know, outside of that, I really can't, I'm, you know, I don't worry about anything else. It's just that I need to continue to pitch well. And, um, you know, whatever happens after that is kind of out of my control. Matt Bushman had a very unique road to get to the major leagues and just to get into professional baseball, our next guest had as unique a road as maybe anybody you could possibly imagine. Uh, the Cincinnati Reds' TJ Friedel was an outstanding college player at the University of Nevada who was eligible for the 2016 draft, but really nobody knew that, uh, including TJ Friedel, it sounds like, until a scout called and let him know very, very late in the process that he was actually eligible to join a major league organization. This was such a weird story that popped up late July toward the end of the minor league season. Uh, TJ Friedel, you know, goes on, joins the Reds organization, signed as an undrafted free agent. All of a sudden, he's the number 11 prospect in the system. He's blowing up at rookie-level billings. This was such a crazy story this year for TJ. Yeah, and I don't really want to get too much into the story on this one just because I think he does as good a job explaining it from his point of view as anybody else really could. Um, he, he really goes into you know his thinking process on deciding, you know, hey, please don't draft me. I'd, I'd rather come back to Nevada um, to what changed and you know what went into that and how summer ball kind of played its way in there and his own performance. So uh, I, I kind of want to leave it in his own terms. I mean, that's what the show is so uh without further ado here's tj friedel it has not even been a week in the professional baseball career of one tj friedel of the billings mustangs the rookie level pioneer of league affiliate of the cincinnati reds but what a week it has been tj welcome to the show there is a lot to unpack in your story so first uh what's going on how's the pioneer league treating you so far pretty good obviously by the numbers it looks like yeah it's been awesome so far uh I was just happy to get here and get going right away. And uh, so far, so good. The team's awesome. Organization's awesome. And I'm, I'm having fun. This is one of the strangest stories. And we'll try to lay it out uh, kind of in the simplest terms possible. But basically, here it is. TJ is a Pleasanton, California native, went to the University of Nevada, played for the Wolfpack for two, th two seasons, but was with the Wolfpack program for three seasons. Based on the rules of eligibility for the Major League Draft, that made TJ eligible for the draft. Unfortunately, nobody seemed to realize that. And so TJ signed as a non-drafted free agent with the uh, Cincinnati Reds organization back uh, just last week, actually. And uh, and you've made your debut. Let's just talk about this this last few months for you because uh, a terrific season, your sophomore campaign with Nevada, an outstanding breakout season with uh, the United States Collegiate National Team. You got to travel all over the world, go down to Cuba. You get the first ever series win in Cuba for the Collegiate National Team. And then all of a sudden, 
you're in professional baseball. What is? How do you even? How do you even encapsulate what these last few months have been like? Uh, it's been wild. I mean, everything from I bounced all around this summer. I was in St. Cloud, then I got invited to USA, had a blast with USA, and then um, kind of came back from from Cuba, and I was kind of like, wow, I'm I'm about to sign a professional contract. Um, it's been, it's been crazy though, but I've enjoyed every second of it. When you go to this uh, assignment with the U.S. national team, obviously that's got to be a, a highlight of of any baseball career. But what comes mm-hmm. out of that is all of a sudden people are looking at you as this is a guy who's going to make an impact at the professional level somehow. And from a couple of stories that we've read, someone reached out to you before the draft. A scout reached out to you before the draft and said, you're draft eligible, which you didn't know. The program didn't seem to know. And basically nobody else around Major League Baseball seemed to know. When that started to hit you and sink in, what was what was your reaction? I mean, everybody sort of assumed you had only played two seasons, so you weren't eligible yet, mm-hmm. but you redshirted for another one. I mean, when you started realizing, holy cow, this is actually a reality, what was that like? Yeah, it was uh, it was weird. You know, I was I knew I was draft eligible after I received that call. Um, but when I got invited to Team USA, I kind of just figured, hey, I'll go out to Team USA and uh, just just work hard and improve my draft stock for next year. You know, that was my goal is just to is just to up my draft stock for the 2017 draft, and that's kind of what I wanted to do. And then um, as the trials went on down in Los Angeles, teams started reaching out to me and started throwing out some offers, um, and I was kind of like, wow, this. This might be reality, you know. This might hit, and uh, and I talked to my parents about it a lot, and they just kept asking me, like, they just kept saying, "Do you think you're ready? Do you think you're ready?" And and we all thought I was ready. I knew I was ready, and we all thought I was ready. So kind of when everything started happening, I kind of settled down and, and and had a moment to think to myself, like, just make sure I'm ready mentally and physically. And I knew I was, so I knew I was ready to go. And just going back to that that first um, scout telling you that you were draft eligible. I mean, how did what exactly did they say? Was it, you know, did he come up to you? Did he call you? And what, what was your reaction? You know, do you, you say, okay, now this could be a thing or did you just immediately just kind of brush him off and say, no, I'm focused on 2017 in terms of draft stuff. Yeah, that's basically what happened. Um, you know, he, he gave me a phone call uh, and he asked, he, he kind of just, you know, I didn't think I was draft eligible. So he, he kind of laid out the whole thing. He's like, yeah, you are. And he laid out the whole three years of academics um, and then, you know, I, I reached out to him. I said, Hey, thanks for everything. Thanks for the phone call. Um, but yeah, it was so close to the draft that I just, you know, I told him, Hey, I want to focus on my summer this year and then have a good year next year and, and be ready for the draft in 2017 is what I told him. And, um, that's pretty much how I went. And when you're talking about how you, you, when you talked to your parents and you, you were looking at yourself and you said you felt ready, I mean, was there something that had changed this summer? Was it the USA experience or would you have felt ready, you know, in the spring if you had just gotten that call a couple months earlier? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, the USA experience definitely played a big role because uh, I could tell that I could compete with the best of the best in the country and in, you know, Japan, Taiwan, and Cuba. And, and that was definitely a big confidence booster for me. But even back into the spring, um, I felt I felt confident. I was I was I was feeling good, and I mean I would have been ready to go in the spring. I knew I'd be fine to go then. Um, but I think USA definitely played a big role and and just helped me realize that I can compete with the best of the best. And what is it like just logistically when you decide? I mean, like so much of this for guys, they know the draft is coming. They they prepare. They hire, you know, um, not agents, but you know, guys to help advisors. them out through that. Advisors, thank you, Tyler. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, just guys to help them out with that process, and for you, it has to happen in a, in a couple of weeks. Be, you know, for this to to go through. So, what was that process like from the moment you decide, yes, I can do this now, to officially signing with the Reds? 
Yeah, it was uh, pretty. It was pretty wild because you know everything happened in that two week span. Um, actually, it was like it was about one week because then I had to go overseas. But um, once once everything started kind of moving fast for me, um, I reached out to my coach at Nevada, Coach Bruce, and he actually set me up with uh, the company Sosnick, Karen and Cobb, and that's an agency out of the Bay Area, California, where I'm from. Um, so I sat down and I talked to Adam Karen uh, a couple times. And I felt confident with him, and um, I trusted him. And, and just just through phone calls, I knew he was the right guy for me. And um, once I got him on my side, it, it made things a lot easier for me, and it, it helped me kind of settle down and just focus on baseball, which was awesome. So at this stage in TJ's career, he's gone from a walk-on uh, at Nevada, played his freshman year, redshirted his sophomore year, played the following mm-hmm. season, which was this season. Uh, you jump out of an outstanding campaign this year collegiately in which you ranked 11 in the nation with a 401 batting average, second with nine triples, 17th in on-base percentage at 494, and 24th in the nation with 89 hits this season. Um, go to the national team, play very, very well there. Uh, in basically a month with the U.S. national team, you batted 290. And then all of a sudden, these last few weeks it seems like everything is just compressed so quickly because some teams come at you you agree to a deal with the reds sign a contract fly to billings you're in the lineup that night when you fly to <laughs> billings and you go out and hit two home runs and go three for three what is with you man <laughs> i don't know it was crazy um you know i was i came here and straight from the airport just took my luggage <laughs> into the clubhouse and uh kind of got introduced to the team and originally i wasn't in the lineup but uh towards game time coach asked me if I was ready to go I told him yeah and uh I just wanted to get playing again and you know that first home run happened and I kind of was thought I was dreaming for a second and I was just like there's no way and then the second one happened and then I'm like yeah I'm definitely dreaming I was like this isn't reality right now but uh I mean it was it was a hell of a day and uh something I remember for the rest of my life. TJ, let me ask you this. When you got to Billings, what was the reaction of your teammates? Because so many of these guys have obviously been through the draft process. It's so stressful, um, you know, for the international guys. I mean, they sign at 16, 17, whatever it is. They climb up through, mm-hmm. um, you know, a very difficult route to get to even just to the Pioneer League and then on to full season ball. You got to – I don't want to, you know, say that you got to skip a lot of that stress, but your route is so different from these other guys. What has the reaction been to here's this new guy coming in. He's obviously going to help us, um, but you come in with such a different storyline yeah um you know i don't I, I don't think many many of the guys here looked into that um because you know they i'm not being treated any differently here i'm just being treated as one of the guys and that's that's what it really what i wanted and uh all the guys are really opening really welcoming and uh you know they asked me what happened i basically the only reactions i got out of them is when they asked when i signed i told them two days ago <laughs> and uh, they're kind of like, yeah, they're kind of like, oh, when you sign, I'm like, oh, I signed a couple of days ago in Cincinnati. And then they're like, oh, wait, what? And then they're like, you just got out here? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> um, then I had to explain the whole Team USA thing. But, I mean, other than that, all the guys here have been really welcoming and really open and, and really friendly. And uh, what is the – um, transition been like for you just a pro ball I know it's only been five games so far you know you barely had a chance for your feet to touch the ground but um, you know playing in a professional atmosphere playing in the pioneer league you know one of the lower levels but w- what has that transition been like what are the, some of the differences you've noticed going from USA to this or going from Nevada to this yeah uh, I think you know there's really um, I guess the only change is uh, I mean, the pitching I've seen here obviously has been, been a little bit better um, but but no, nothing's been overwhelming. Uh, you know, it's just a game I've been playing my whole life, and that's just what I keep telling myself is uh, it's the game I've been playing since I was four years old and, and not to overthink anything and just play the game. 
And there's one I wanted to touch on, too, just because we did get it to it before. We don't have many guys here on this podcast yet who have, who have played in Cuba. You, you had that chance. What was that mm-hmm. experience like? Um, you know, being one of the first groups to go down there since times have changed between U.S. Cuba relations, and what was just the baseball experience like? What was the overall experience like? It was awesome uh, just to get to, just be able to go down there and play and uh, get get to see that country and, and the country itself was beautiful. Everything there was nice and beautiful, um, and it, it really put things into perspective for me and, and really made me realize everything that we have here in America and. Uh, the cities there were beautiful. Some of them not so not so pretty, um, but that really helped me put things into perspective and just just made me grateful. Um, but everyone, all the fans in Cuba, the players, everyone in Cuba was very welcoming and opened us and very friendly. Uh, so I enjoyed it. It was a once in a lifetime experience, and I had a great time being there. USA Baseball captured its first ever series victory in Cuba, and that was uh, highlighted in Game 4. TJ had a three-run double in the sixth inning. That was part of a four-run sixth that allowed the U.S. national team to uh, take a 4-1 victory in Game 4. That evened the series, and the Americans took Game 5 to get a series win there. Um, But this has been such a cool story. It's been so awesome for us to get a chance to talk to you, TJ. Uh, So far throughout his first five professional games, 11 for 20, which is pretty good. Um, Five doubles, two homers, five runs batted in. He's OPSing a paltry 1709 at this stage, so maybe a little work to do with the bat, I guess, early on is what we're saying. But, uh, TJ, this is so cool, man. Congratulations to you on all the success so far and such a, an amazing route to get to where you are already, and uh, I'm sure we'll be talking to you again down the road. Yeah, hey, thank you. I appreciate it. So we've had two player development side interviews and two player interviews, Andy McKay and Rachel Bogovic, and then – Mariners and Astros systems in the front office side and the player development side. Matt Bushman and TJ Friedel on the field for the D-backs and the Reds. And now we go into the broadcast booth. And one of the storylines that will go down as one of the, the headlines of minor league baseball in 2016, the contraction of two teams from the California League and the addition of two teams to the Carolina League for 2017, the High Desert Mavericks and the Bakersfield Blaze will no longer be a part of the California League going into 2017. And really, especially from the Bakersfield side, that was the end of an era. Bakersfield had been a part of the California League since its inception. And a, a team with a fan base that, you know, for the, the loyal followers, very passionate loyal followers, one of the, I think you could say, quirkiest ballparks in minor league baseball in Samlin Ballpark in Bakersfield. And Dan Bespris, the radio voice of the Bakersfield Blaze, joined us really kind of almost like in the the wake phase i think of of bakersfield's uh grieving process they knew that the team was headed out that was a finality at that stage and for dan and for that front office this was kind of the acceptance stage in which we talked to him it was episode number 73 when we talked to dan uh which was very heavily focused from our our vantage point the whole episode on minor league realignment but for those guys in that front office those those men and women working in bakersfield and working at high desert i mean that's the end of a a job path in a lot of cases you got to go out you got to find something new to do you know maybe it forces you down the road into a different career this is a a very big storyline beyond just what it meant for baseball and dan was so gracious uh to give us his time and it was really a i don't want to say a difficult interview for us but it was definitely a very different one than anything we've had to do on the show yeah i mean it definitely forced forced us to be empathetic i mean from the get-go um and we certainly were empathetic because you know like you said there this was the human side of this is that 
yeah, the the Seattle Mariners who you know had their prospects in Bakersfield, they get to pack up, they go somewhere else. I mean, it, it's not like a huge deal. You know, they're going to Modesto next year. Uh, life goes on for them. It's this Bakersfield community. Yeah, they didn't turn guys out a lot. I think you'll hear Dan talk about how basically things were held together with paper clips and gum and string and whatever. But you know, the, people have lost their jobs now, and and what's next for them? I know Dan. Since I think he does a, a really good fantasy basketball podcast, he's found some you know his own outlet there. Uh, but when you hear about these teams closing and other opportunities picking up elsewhere, do know that there are people like Dan and you know his former colleagues who who now have to find other avenues to go. So uh, yeah, this is this was a chance for Dan to to explain his story and you know the the stories of his colleagues. And um, you know I, I'm glad we were able to have him on for for that time. And I think you know it's to the benefit of, of us all. And for this week's conversation, the show before the show podcast heads to Bakersfield, California, which is uh, on its way out as a minor league market as of right now. And we welcome in Dan Bespris, who is the radio voice, longtime radio voice of the Bakersfield Blaze, currently the Class A advanced affiliate of the Seattle Mariners. And Dan, obviously not an easy week, uh, not an easy stretch for you guys, but welcome and thanks a ton for joining us. What is the current state in the front office? I mean, uh, not a, a real easy few days, I would imagine, to come to work. But at the same time, you know, you guys are kind of all going through this together. And I would imagine there's a little bit of comfort in that. What's it been like for the last few days? Yeah, I mean, uh, you, you sort of answered your own question with that one. It was it, it's spot on. It's been uh, an incredibly difficult week. And and hello, by the way, to everyone. Uh, <laughs> uh, this is something where having been here for six years now, which in in minor league ball is kind of an eternity. Um, I think I've been a part of four different departure rumors just just in six years. So at some point, you become a little bit numb to the idea that it will actually happen someday. I mean, I figured it would happen 2035 or something like that, and I'd be long gone, whether that's elsewhere or dead. Uh, and, and, and at that point, you pass along all the knowledge and everything that we put together here. But it, it really happened. I mean, it, it happened... Uh, we on staff had about uh, a very short warning before the official press release came out, but we did know beforehand, uh, and and it stings. I mean, it it cuts really deep, and and for me personally, uh, I mean, my my time in Bakersfield probably was not going to be that much longer, whether it was this year or next or a couple of years down the line. Uh, so it's not necessarily the fact that I'm not going to have something to do in Bakersfield le- next season. For me, it's much more about all the time that we've all here put into this stadium to kind of keep it together, to to tie it up with with string and duct tape, and to do our best two thousand hours, whatever it is, over the season to to make it fun and to make it interesting. And I, I just really hope that everybody, not only here locally but across the nation, kind of remembers the the staff that held it together as long as we did. But at the end of the day. Uh, you know they had two decades to try to figure out how to how to get this place figured out and and it didn't happen so you know you knew this day would come eventually you just hope that it wouldn't be immediate and uh, and that's where we sit right now a, a lot of sad faces and a lot of kind of trying to put on a good show our last home stand but um, really nothing else you can do right now but but just try to make the last few home games memorable 
And, and you mentioned a little bit of the community and, you know, Bakersfield itself as a city, as, as a region. I mean, what has the reaction been, you know, outside the stadium, outside the front office to all of this? Um, you know, what, what kind of words are you guys getting from people in the community or, you know, like I said, outside the organization? The response has actually been fantastic in terms at least of our personal pride for those of us on the front office staff because it's been almost unilaterally, wow, you guys, you know, you really worked your tails off. We saw the front office busting their humps in a kind of an unwinnable situation at times. Um, but there's also frustration with whether it's other people kind of calling each other out in town. Hey, why didn't you go to more ball games? Or calling out the county for not building something new. That It's a lot of kind of initial finger pointing, I think, where that to some degree is just human nature. You want to try to blame somebody when something bad happens. But uh, again, I, it, it, it's, there's blame to go around. It, pretty much anywhere you point a finger, wherever you're pointing, there's probably some measure of guilt that you could find in that direction. And I, to me, that's not even the most important part right now. But uh, the people of the town have been awesome. They've, uh, they've supported us in a big way uh, on, on social media so far. And I know when the news broke, I got text messages from former colleagues, former employees of other teams in the California League, season ticket holders, and almost everybody that I'd met in my time out here has tried to contact me in some way to kind of say, hey, we're thinking about you. We know this is a hard time. You guys did everything you could, uh, and, and we'll miss you. And really, maybe one out of about two or 300 responses was good riddance to bad rubbish. And frankly, if we can keep that to a, a one or two percent or less, then I think we did a pretty good job here the last couple of years, and, and we're awfully proud of that. Sam Lynn Ballpark in particular, you know, a, a, an historic park, goes back to 1941. Uh, you know, what, what is the state of that park? What have you guys had to do with that, that structure? You know, just as a place that, uh, that stood that long, what have you guys had to do to keep it going this long? And, um, you know, where does it, what is the next step for that ballpark? Yeah, uh, you know, I don't want to overstep my bounds and say that this is the hardest ballpark in the world to work at, but I got to believe we're top 10. Uh, you know, this is this is an old facility where uh, it hasn't really had a ton of things done to it to make it an easier place to work. As a, as just kind of a quick example that you can extrapolate to other parts, other facets of a day at the office, we still use uh, an Internet and phone provider uh, known as TW Telecom, which I think was a Time Warner uh, communications branch that basically doesn't exist anymore outside of some very rare scenarios. Um, AT&T does not reach our stadium. Local Bright House Cable does not reach our stadium. We're, we're set in an area where uh, they would have had to dig a subterranean hole about a quarter of a mile from the nearest branch point. So we're, we've been operating, you know, the whole front office and the clubhouse on a T1 line which uh, I, I know I'm sort of adjusting my bifocals as I say that, but uh, <laughs> as, as a point of reference, that was the big thing in 2001. That's 15 years ago now, and that's still what we're using out here. So that's not you know to, to poke fun at the stadium. That's just to kind of point out that everything here is 15 years harder than it should be. Uh, and, it, and it's, it's mind-bogglingly frustrating at times, but at the end of it, 
I, I don't know if I can really express adequately that, that sense of pride and that sense of relief when you actually make it work. When you, when you build yeah. this thing out of the duct tape that we were talking about in the paper clips and it, and it works and it was so hard and nobody thought that it would and then you made it work anyway. And that, that to me is a microcosm of Sam Lynn Ballpark. Outside of all the other things, everything, by the way, that anybody listening has heard is probably true and it's just amazing. I, I, just, I hope anybody that wants to can, can still take this week to come out and see the place. Everybody's favorite anecdote about Sam Lynn, of course, is that the the Blaze start uh, home games a lot of time during the summer at 745 at night because the architects of Sam Lynn Ballpark back in the 40s thought that placing a ballpark that faced directly west would not be a bad idea. And I guess when you weren't playing that many <laughs> night games, exactly. it's really not that troublesome. Yeah, you know, every one of the weird stories out here has some goofy explanation behind it. Uh, with the possible exception of the fact that the dugouts only hold about eight people, I still can't figure out. I still can't figure out why they did that. But uh, you know, we had the old uh, fairgrounds out here, and the the stands were already set up, and so they just sort of plopped a ballpark into it. They didn't, and you can't rotate it 180 degrees. That's something that people have talked about. You'd actually have to physically move it farther away from the Kern River, or seats would not be on a firm enough ground. So. You know, they built it in the 40s. It, they played day games, and as they started to go to night games, they either started before or well after sunset. And only recently has it become a much bigger issue where, you know, everybody has to be home promptly at 9.45 and then in bed by 10. And, yeah, in the summertime, most people only get to see about five and a half innings of Blaze baseball. Sam Lynn Ballpark uh, is one of the longest tenured facilities in minor league baseball and is uh, a facility that we'll be saying goodbye to as a California league ballpark in the Cal League moving to eight teams, which is something that uh, it has not been in its incarnation since the late 1970s. But what I think runs the risk of being lost in all this a lot of the time is the impact that it has on people like Dan and the front office members uh, around him and around the front office of the High Desert Mavericks because that's the, those are the people that it affects most. It'll affect the fans, but even players, coaches, they'll move on. They'll play in Kinston. They'll play in Fayetteville, wherever it is. But for front office staff members, when you're there at 8 o'clock in the morning every day and you leave at midnight and you do that for eight days straight in an eight-game homestand, and as Dan said, you're putting things together with spit and bubble gum and duct tape and paper clips and you're making it all work, those are the people whose blood, sweat, and tears get poured into something like this. And it, I would imagine, feels like it all has gone for naught in a lot of cases, but that's in no way the case. I mean, we know the enjoyment that minor league baseball brings to millions, tens of millions of people across the country year after year. And Bakersfield, which I didn't know until this week, is the ninth largest city in California. So the amount yep. of people who have filed into that ballpark over the last eight decades is incredible. But for the front office staff, at least from my vantage point, that's who this comes down to. And what has that been like for you guys as, you know, kind of a grieving family at this stage uh, to share that amongst each other? And in minor league baseball, shared suffering is your existence. Pulling the tarp, <laughs> cleaning up the concourses, all that stuff is your existence. But this takes that to an entirely different level. Yeah, this uh, that shared suffering remark is is uh, so well put. I, I I don't know that I could really phrase it better myself. I I've spent the last couple of days really just thinking about all the people on the front office that have come through here in my six seasons with the baseball team, and just whether it's full time staffers or interns 
or whatever. And and heck, you know, I think the person that that's most impacted by this is our official scorer, Tim Wheeler, who everybody in the California League knows, and I'm betting a lot of folks back at BAM are well aware of Tim. Uh, he's been out here for over two straight decades scoring games at Sam Lynn Ballpark. I mean, he's he's as great a fixture here as anybody, uh, including our program salesman, Froggy, who's also kind of a national treasure. Uh, that <laughs> A lot of people know about Froggy, too. Uh, but, yeah, I mean... That is the hard part. Uh, I, I can't get into, unfortunately, too much of the details on kind of how everything's wrapping up. But um, the team is likely changing hands. Uh, so everybody on the front office staff will indeed be looking for uh, other things to do. We're fortunate enough out here to be under the ownership umbrella group of uh, the Elmore Sports Group. So there may be some opportunities for hopefully at least some of our staffers to, to find other positions within that group. Uh, but for those of us who have sort of a, uh, to take a line out of taken, I guess, a more specific set of skills uh, and, and want to do something like, for me, broadcasting, uh, spots are few and far between. So it is, uh, it is a tough time indeed. We're, we're just, I, I don't know, I think the best way to describe this week has been just kind of putting our heads down. And it might really sink in after our last regular season home game on Sunday the 28th when... The team goes out on the road and everybody realizes there ain't a whole lot left to do at that point besides fire sale out here. It's time to it's time to get rid of some stuff. And uh, and then you kind of stare down the barrel at the ending and and it hits you. I'll admit, guys, that uh, when I heard this news, it made me way, way more upset than I thought it would. And I have already cried about it. I, I didn't know that would happen. And it did. And I think uh, like you said, shared suffering, just so many hours poured into this place. And I, I just, again, I just pray that it doesn't disappear, that that people will, here locally in particular, remember everything that happened at this ballpark for 75 years and appreciate it. And and maybe someday Bakersfield will, will kind of get its act together and, and get a ballpark and get baseball back. Dan Bestress of the Bakersfield Blaze, and we are going to round out the final episode of 2016, I think in very fitting fashion, with uh, maybe the the brightest star from the 2016 Major League Baseball first-year player draft. And with that, a guy who kind of embodies the hope that we all feel for 2017 and the spring and sunshine and summertime and games and hopefully some some good things down the road uh, for all of us when we enter the doldrums of winter. Mickey Moniak, the number two prospect in the Philadelphia Phillies system and the top draft selection in the 2016 Major League Baseball first-year player draft. Uh, we talked last week about how we talked to so many of those guys, you know, the Alex Bregmans and the Ryan Healy's and the David Dahls, Wilson Contreras and Albert Almora. We talked to those guys at the end of their minor league careers, really. Uh, you know, I don't think we're ever going to see any of that group back for any substantial period of time. You wouldn't imagine, especially with the way things went for most of them at the major league level uh, in 2016. For Mickey Moniak, it's the opposite of that. I mean, this is just getting started for him. All Everything is out there for Mickey Moniak. He can be as good as that ceiling suggests he can be and maybe more so when you talk to a kid who's just out of high school into pro ball for the first time and this is all new and this is all fresh 
it makes you kind of feel every reason why we do what we do because that was a ton of fun to get a chance to talk to Mickey. This was back uh, on episode number 74, so it was toward the tail end of the the debut season for him, but you felt like the excitement was as much there on August 31st when we talked to him as it was in mid-June when he got picked. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, the interesting thing about baseball, I think, is, you know, there's so much interest in the draft, um, not necessarily compared to certainly the NFL or the NBA. But uh, the thing is, you know, in those other leagues, you get so wrapped up in who goes number one overall. I don't think baseball necessarily has that. So it makes guys like Mickey Moniak all the more approachable. It's not like they're on the, this throne of you know, I'm the number one overall pick. You know, Dansby Swanson the same way, um, and, and Mark Appel, Brady Aiken, you know, Carlos Correa going back, whatever. I don't think since Bryce Harper have we really had a guy who just seems like is the pinnacle of the sport just because they were taken number one overall. Uh, so to hear you know that youthful enthusiasm come through with Moniac is really fun because you know in your head maybe you think. He is a guy who could have a little bit of an ego and it's not necessarily coming across other than he is just a young athlete just getting his first taste of pro ball, uh, you know, playing the entire year in the Gulf Coast League, which, you know, if if you think you're going to be, you know, hoity-toity, whatever big guy on campus, and then roll into the GCL, you're going to become humbled pretty quickly. So, uh, yeah, it was fun to get him. I think we've had three out of the last four number one overall picks on the podcast uh, between him, Swanson, and I think Mark Appel was on when it was you and Jake. Yeah. R.I.P. Jake. Um, yeah, R.I.P. Jake. So, it, it, you know, <laughs> it, all guys coming from different scenarios to that road to number one. Uh, but Moniac, you know, was gracious enough to join us, and uh, you can hear that interview now. Headed to the Gulf Coast League and the home of the Philadelphia Phillies, which is where we find Mickey Moniak, the uh, top overall draft selection for the Phillies in 2016, their second-ranked prospect and one of the most exciting young talents. And I do mean young talents, by the way. Mickey uh, just turned 18 on May 13th, so for all of you who really want to feel old, Mickey, welcome into the show. How's uh, how's the debut season going? Uh, you know, I'm enjoying it. You know, just playing a little – playing pro baseball for a living is uh you know it's a dream come true and I'm, I'm i'm running with it i'm having fun the crazy thing about it is and it's it's similar for college guys but for high school guys the transition is so much bigger because you're going from you know basically the home life that you've known your entire life and and not only that but in your senior season you know starting to play competitive games january february in a lot of cases now it's august i mean now you've been doing this you've gone through so much transition and so much change are you exhausted by this point in the year? I mean, the last few days of this season with, you know, maybe an instructs trip ahead or more off-season work, I mean, how do you how do you battle through kind of the last few days of what's been such a long grind just from the start of this calendar year alone? I mean, you know what? Just, you know, playing baseball every day, you know, it's, it's a blessing. You know, it's something I've always wanted to do. And uh, I think that, that definitely gets me through it. You know, it's, it's tough, obviously, you know, playing, you know, every day, six days a week, you know, with one off day. But, you know, I'm enjoying it. You know, I've met a lot of good guys, you know, just, you know, all these guys out here are cool guys, guys I like to spend time with, guys I enjoy spending time with. So, you know, it's uh, it's something that, you know, it's definitely a grind, but, you know, I was, uh, you know, I was definitely going into it knowing that it was going to be like this and knowing it's going to be a grind and, you know, it's definitely tiring at times, but, you know, you're playing baseball for a living and, you know, there's nothing much more you could ask for. And what's, been the biggest surprise so far i mean you're playing in the gcl not a lot of fans if any 
make it out to those games. You're playing on spring training facilities, uh, spring training complexes. Um, you know, what, what has been the biggest surprise since you made your debut a couple months ago, um, going through this process and, you know, be, becoming a professional? I mean, you know, you know, the, I guess the biggest surprise would be, you know, just all the guys you're seeing from on a day-to-day basis, even in the GCL, you know, you got guys throwing, you know, mid nineties, you know, just great pitchers that, you know, you see every day and, you know, there's, there's not a letdown. There's never a guy where it's like, Oh, this guy, you know, worse, like a little bit, you know, not as good as the last guy, you know, every guy is, you know, seems like they're throwing mid nineties and you just got to go out and compete and, you know, play your game and have fun. And, and Mickey, kind of take me through the draft process for you. Um, obviously, first overall pick, that's got to be the most exciting route through the draft. You don't have to wait very long on draft day. Um, but when was that kind of apparent that, you know, the Phillies were interested in you at 1-1 um, or that you had the talent to make it that far? I mean, you, you had a really great career there in California at La Costa Canyon. Um, but what was it like going through the showcase process, you know, going trying to have a normal high school life and then getting drafted first overall? You know, it was awesome. You know, going through the showcase, whole the whole showcase process. I met a lot of guys that you know I'm out, in, I'm out in Florida with right now, and you know, just that whole showcase process really, you know, made me familiar with the guys I'm going to be playing with for who knows how long. But you know, that whole that whole process was fun. It definitely, you know, got my name out there. And then, um, you know, going into the high school season, I was just excited to play. You know, my last season with all my friends in high school, enjoy it. You know, high school baseball is. You know, you can't really compare it to anything. It's just a, it's a fun time playing with all your buddies. And, you know, months, I guess you could say a couple months before the draft is really when it, when the one, one talks, you know, started and, you know, it was never for sure. It was never for sure thing until, you know, two minutes before the draft, my dad comes in, you know, it was a whole negotiation process. You don't know when you're going to go, you know, how, how it's going to happen. But my dad comes in two minutes before the draft, uh, you know, and I was sitting in the, the chair with all the cameras from uh, MLB network and my dad comes in, gives me a little wink and a hug. And, you know, I think I knew from that point on that, that, that night was going to be special. And it was, and then, you know, I had a great time and I'm just very excited to, you know, start a pro career. Yeah. I kind of wanted to ask you about that negotiation process. I'm, I'm sure you were kind of, you know, a couple steps away, you know, at, at the time being a 17 year old kid or you just turned 18 at the time, uh, you know, maybe you were a little shielded from that, but you know, it used to be, you know, you see like the NFL, Joey Bosa just signs now. Um, it was a little different yeah, for you. you get, <laughs> yeah, are you a Chargers fan? <laughs> I guess that's Absolutely. It. <laughs> yeah, no, big Chargers fan. <laughs> yeah, so, for, well, for you, you get drafted in June, you sign in June. Um, so what was that like, you know, talking to the Phillies pre-draft about, you know, what you'd be willing to take and how that kind of works out? Because it's a little different in baseball than some other sports. Right. You know, you know, going into the draft, you know, anytime a, a team that has the first overall pick is, is talking to you, that's something that's, you know, exciting in itself. You really want to, you know, put yourself in that situation to go there. I mean, money-wise, you know, obviously if you're going number one, the number's got to be right. It's got to be, you know, a fair offer. And I, I really feel like I got that. And, you know, just going number one in itself is just such a huge blessing and such an honor, you know, to be named with the guys who've gone number one, you know, in the past. And, uh, you know, that whole process after, I mean, right before the draft, we already pretty much had negotiations done with, and, um, you know, it was, uh, it was, it was over from then on. I kind of just, you know, spent a little time with my friends and family after the draft, you know, got settled in 
and then uh, I was I was off. You know, I was ready to go play baseball for a living, and you know, it's it's been awesome so far. Mickey, being a part of this system now, um, you know, and it's only a few months for you, but the the Philly system has been so reshaped over the last few seasons and very much in large part due to some really savvy moves by the front office. But a lot of the top prospects around you are guys who started their careers outside of the organization. I mean, in MLB Pipeline's rankings, J.P. Crawford, number one here at number two. The next three guys started their careers with the Texas Rangers and Nick Williams, Jorge Alfaro, and Jake Thompson. So this, uh, this system has really been – Thompson, I should clarify, was selected by the Tigers but came over in a trade and spent some time moving through an organization with the Rangers as well. This system has been totally reshaped and is one of the best in baseball now. What is the attitude surrounding just how good this talent is? Because, you know, a few years ago, people in the Philly system probably didn't feel that way, and you didn't go to the ballpark every day thinking, no, we're coming again in this division. Now I would imagine that, especially at the complex, the confidence surrounding all this talent has to be pretty sky high. What is the attitude like for those inside those walls as to what the the next few years really hold for this organization? I mean, it's exciting, you know, just to be a part of it. You know, to to look forward to the future of having, you know, obviously all these great guys around you, you know, guys who are going to be, you know, future big leaguers who are going to, you know, solidify themselves, hopefully, uh, you know, make up a championship team. It's it's exciting to be a part of it. You know, if you look at if you look at all the minor league affiliates with the Phillies right now, I mean, everyone's winning. You know, no one's no one's really, you know, underperforming or anything like that. So that's that's definitely exciting to look at. And, you know, I'm really excited for the future. You know, having all these guys, you know, a lot of guys I haven't met yet, but, you know, I'm really looking forward to, you know, meeting these guys and hopefully, you know, being a part of their team in the future. It's, it's definitely something exciting and, exciting and uh, you know, something that I've been put into that's just been, you know, really fun. Being a California kid, let me ask you this. Playing in the GCL uh, can be very taxing weather-wise. And in California, you're going to deal with some heat, some humidity, but how has been the acclimation to, you know, the heat, the humidity, the long days, the the bus rides, all that kind of stuff in the GCL where you're playing a ton of day games, you're playing a lot in short succession. How have you handled that? And what what is the process to make sure that, you know, day after day, you're eating right, you're working out right, the, the fluids that you have to replenish? Because that's something that's extraordinarily difficult from the transition from amateur ball to pro ball as well. Right. You know, coming into it, you know, I knew it was going to be a grind. And obviously the GCL, I've heard from, you know, Philly scouts, you know, other scouts who, you know, have teams in the GCL that it's 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 a tough week to play in. Obviously, you know, you don't get many fans, you know, 630 wake ups every morning, you know, long days at the ballpark. But, you know, you're playing baseball. You got to get a step back and, you know, realize that you're playing baseball for a living. And, you know, it's 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 been fun. You know, obviously the, the Phillies especially have you know, a great staff around them, all the trainers I've, I've been with and, you know, all the, all the hitting coaches and all the guys that, you know, we're surrounded with have been uh, very helpful. And, you know, it's, it's, it's fun when you're, you know, you're playing with uh, an organization that treats you well. And, you know, I'm just really excited, you know, to be a part of the, the Philadelphia Phillies. And, and Mickey, kind of take me through, you know, what, has been different about you since you've gone pro? I mean, what would, what's something about your game now um, since you are now in a pro system, you've got, you know, so many hands so many coaches, so many more coaches, uh, you know, uh, just the Phillies organization trying to mold you into a future major leaguer. What's something about you as a player that's different now than it would have been, you know, in, in the spring when you were uh, still playing high school ball? You know, just knowing that uh, every day is going to be, you know, a grind, obviously. You know, you show up to the ballpark at 630, 
you know, tissue prep, early work, all this stuff that, you know, in high school, high school, you don't really do high school baseball. You kind of just show up to the field and play, but you know, it's definitely, you know, it's been, uh, it's been fun getting to know the ropes of, you know, minor league baseball and then professional baseball, you know, getting there early, getting your work in and then, uh, you know, putting in the time and, you know, hopefully it, it shows on the field, but you know, it's been something that, uh, you know, I've kind of ran with and I'm, I'm really enjoying and is there something in your skill set that's been different or are they just letting you be you here so far? Is there like an approach that's different uh, at the plate or anything that you're doing differently in the outfield? Um, what about that kind of aspects? I mean, they, they definitely worked, worked with me on things. For the most part, they're just letting me be me. You know, they, uh, you know, I, I know what I can do on the baseball field. And there's obviously always room to grow, but, you know, for the most part, you know, they just let me do me, obviously get a little, do a little outfield drills and just little minor things that, you know, could help me be, you know, a better outfielder. And then uh, obviously just hitting the cage, um, you know, something's a little off, you know, you, you talk about it, you, you go and you watch video, you have all those resources, but um, no, it's just been, uh, they, they basically let me do me so far and, you know, I, uh, I'm enjoying it. All right. And I have this little, Last final question. You can see if Tyler has something else. But the uh, today is Ted Williams's birthday, and I, I came across a story of your grandfather Bill. Uh, you know, played six seasons in the Red Sox farm system. Got to know Ted Williams a little bit. Got to l- use some of his lessons. Pass them on to you. What is one particular piece of advice that you got from your grandfather um, that you know you think of every day, or you think of when you're at the plate? Um, something that he got from Ted Williams and has passed on to you. What specifically is something there? I mean, the main thing is, you know, when you go to the plate, you own the pitcher. You know, it doesn't matter if it's, you know, the best pitcher in the league or, or just some, you know, everyday guy. You know, you, you own the you own whoever's on that mound. and You go in, oh, count, he makes a good pitch outside corner. You know, so what, let him have it. You know, oh, one, makes another good pitch, so what. You know, you're, you're really looking for your pitch. And then uh, you get down to oh, two, um, you know, that's when you got to, you know, get on the plate, put the ball in play. But, you know, the pitcher's never going to beat you. And, uh, you know, that's just a mindset that I've had. And that's something my uh, my grandpa passed to me, which Ted Williams passed to him. So, you know, I've, I've just been grateful for, for everything my grandpa has taught me. And, you know, obviously my dad and all this stuff, being surrounded by baseball at an early age, it's been, uh, it's been really fun. Not a whole lot of people get to say the phrase, as my grandpa has passed to me, that Ted Williams passed to him, and that's pretty awesome. Um, I do have one final question for you, Mickey. When you get home as a Southern California guy over the offseason, whenever it is when you finally get home, what is the first meal that you go for now after several months away? What's the thing that you're just, like, dying to get to when you get back home when the season's over? Um, it has to be my dad's home cooking. You know, my dad, <laughs> my dad loves to cook. Um, you know, it's hot roast mashed potatoes. So, uh, yeah, no, I'm really looking forward to getting home. You know, he, he loves, he loves making his food. He loves doing all that. I mean, you know, I'm happy. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't be happier, you know, getting that good food every day. It's, it's been, it's been awesome. Okay. Someday when Sam and I end up in Southern California, we're going to ask for a trip to the Moniac <laughs> household and some pot roast. Cause yeah. that sounds amazing now. To, to, to heck with in and out. We're just going to the Moniac. Doors are always open. <laughs> Mickey Moniak is on Twitter, the second-ranked prospect in the Philadelphia Phillies organization. You can find there at Mickey Moniak, M-O-N-I-A-K is his last name, in case you've been living under a rock and didn't know that by now. Uh, Mickey, congratulations (laughs) on an awesome first season, and uh, thanks a ton for giving us a few minutes, and we'll be following the rest of the way this year and on into 2017 and your debut in full season ball, man. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So that will do it. 
for 2016, somehow, on the Minor League Baseball Podcast, the show before the show. The first full calendar year with the Minor League Baseball Podcast, I think, right? Because we started, like, uh, in spring training in 2015. So, that's nuts. So yeah. Like a full, like a full slate. <laughs> so, when we talk so much year. about how, like, next year is going to be the first full full season for mickey moniac we just yeah. had our first we just had our season. first full season yeah we got our yeah. first taste of full season ball this year yeah. since being drafted with the first and only overall selection of the minor league uh baseball podcast draft i guess We're does, does that mean season. we get to get called up to like a prospect or a, a podcast friendly league well like, i mean we keep talking about eventually jerry depoto is going to trade us or trade for us we just don't know which one <laughs> we'll just find out what our worth is are we the centerpieces <laughs> of that draft or are we just the throw-ins <laughs> Week after week, we keep figuring at some point we're going to get some news from Jerry DePoto on the Mariners. It just hasn't <laughs> happened yet. I don't know what the deal is up there. Maybe the maybe that should be our goal for 2017 to get yeah. Jerry DePoto on the podcast to talk about where we would us. slot into a trade yeah. scenario of some of some repute. Um, you know, we've got the in with Andy McKay. Yeah, yeah. So we'll, we'll aim for that in 2017. <laughs> That'll be our resolution. What, what, what should be our resolution? Just before. Yeah, we go. no, that's that's a, that's a good question. Um. For the podcast or, or for the site or personally? Eh, just, you know, for minor league baseball in general, for the podcast. But we can start with the podcast. You can open it up. Whatever whatever I, you want, Tyler. I'm going to go with a, with a wacky idea in that I think there should be a resolution out there for a team looking to rebrand in 2017 to just go with a normal name. <laughs> like, you would really buck the trend if you just decided to go – no, we're gonna go. We're gonna go very normal. I was hoping that the the team in Kinston, North Carolina, now known as the Down East Wood Ducks, I was hoping they were gonna go with the Kinston Eagles, which was the name of minor league baseball teams in Kinston for like fifty years at the outset of their baseball history. They did not go that route. Eagles was one of the options, but they didn't choose that route. I think it'd be great if a team just decided, no, we're gonna rebrand and we're gonna go with something old school, like when Hartford was in the process of getting a team now known as the Yard Goats. There was a discussion that maybe they would go with the Dark Blues, which was, I believe, a major league team in the late 19th century in Hartford and is referenced in uh, Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court, something Mark Twain-ish. Um, but I think that would be really cool. So that's my resolution. Somebody do that. Be, be bold by not being bold. Yeah, well, maybe the, the leader in that category is Staten Island, who you know we haven't been able to talk yeah. about it yeah, because we're doing ret- retrospectives, but they announced – uh, by the time you're listening to this a couple weeks ago, uh, that they were going to stay as the Yankees for the 2017 season. They will not be changing their name. Uh, it, it sounds like there was some clerical stuff that couldn't get cleared up in time for them to get a, a good logo and everything uh, cobbled together for the 2017 season. So they'll be the Yankees next year. They still, I think, want to rebrand. They're just delaying that process. Uh, I don't think the finalists that were the finalists for that group including the Pizza Rats, the Bridge Trolls, Rock Pigeons. Uh, I don't think those are going to be the finalists for next year, so maybe that's where your hope lies, Tyler. By the way, didn't uh, didn't it just come out that the Pizza Rat thing was faked? Yes. So yeah, the, the, like the real, the actual Pizza Rat video was fake. Right. Yeah. The, the person who faked it or trained the rat, uh, I guess, did an interview with the Washington Post. Yeah, her so. name is... Her name is Zardulu, really. She is a performance artist who calls herself Zardulu. And, and she did an interview in which she said that Pizza Rat was not real. 
Yeah, and did the interview like in a mask and all these things. <laughs> anyway, you can find that on the Washington Post. So maybe that was why. Maybe they yeah. were like, oh, man, it's not even real. Come on. Can't go with so I guess ads, my man. resolution would be yeah, just what's to yours? bring you guys more stuff from the ballpark. Uh, I, I think a lot of what we do for this podcast is getting guys to call in, and that's great. And, uh, you know, we're very thankful because, you know, because it is the minors. The guys are a lot more forthcoming, and they're a lot easier to get in touch with. But uh, I think for our goal next year, you know, it's going to be whether, you know, it'll start from spring training. You know, you'll be in Arizona. I'll be in Florida, uh, both traveling yeah. around there. Um, you know, trying to get more stuff from the park itself or more podcast interviews from the park itself uh, and and give you a little more insight into that. Um, but otherwise, I think it, it, we just got to keep this train rolling. You know, we're, we're through a first full season. It, it was a very successful one, I think. And uh, we're very grateful for all the feedback we get from you guys and, um, you know, all the, the fans of the podcast and every, everybody who's reached out in 2016. And we're going to try to bring you more of that fun stuff in 2017. We've had a whole ton of fun doing this uh, for our second season and our first full year of the Minor League Baseball Podcast. And, again, as always, you can get in touch with us. Podcast at MILB.com is the email address. Sam is on Twitter. He's at Sam Dykstra, MILB, and I am at Tyler Mon. You can get in touch with us there. Send us an email. Do whatever. We're always open to your questions and your comments and your suggestions for the show and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, yeah, I guess that'll do it for 2016. And, you know. Sam is the he's the straw that stirs the drink. He's the Brett Phillips of this podcast. <laughs> nice Shout break. out to Brett Phillips. As always, Sam. Yeah. Great job. Great great job to you, Tyler. Thanks, buddy. Thank you. Thank you hey. for making this, you know, so easy to do and so fun. And uh yeah, I can't wait to to see what twenty seventeen brings for the both of us. It's gotta be better than twenty sixteen. The official <laughs> motto of twenty seventeen. And the <laughs> next time we talk to you will be from twenty seventeen. Happy New Year, everybody. We'll talk to you next week. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.